At Hodder Education, we know that every geography classroom need is different, which is why we have developed a wide range of print and digital Key Stage 3, GCSE and A-level geography resources, written by the experts that you know and trust. Whether it's the award-winning Progress in Geography, Key Stage 3 online bank of resources, or our brand new set of My Revision Notes, written specifically for the exam board you deliver, we have the right set of resources to support your students. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash geography today to explore more. Hello there, welcome to JogPod. Today, it gives me great pleasure to be joined by Helen Mazalong. Now, normally I'm talking to either a teacher or an academic, but this time I'm not. Helen's a GIS technician at ALSIS, where she works with imagery and maps to help organisations make data-driven and evidence-based decisions. I'm going to talk more about that in a bit. So, Helen, thanks for agreeing to join me on JogPod. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Honestly, though, I hadn't heard of ALSIS. So then I went trolling onto the website and the strap line's really impressive. It, mm. If I quote this, it's improving the lives of the world's most vulnerable people through innovative world-class geographic information services, which sounds like a dream job. Absolutely fantastic. Before, though, before I ask about that, I want to, I just want to find a little bit about, about you and perhaps why you didn't become a teacher, <laughs> because almost everybody else I talk to is a teacher or an academic. But what inspired you, as you were going through the education system, to take this path that you've taken? Yeah, so it started, I guess, from a young age. I always loved maps, and at bedtime, I'd always take a map with my dad, and we would just look through it, and he would tell me, all the different stories about different places he's been to. And um, I guess it came in hand in hand that geography was also my favourite subject at school. And it just came really naturally to me. Was your dad really well travelled then? Did, did he travel a lot? Was it, were there places he'd been to? So were, there, were the stories the stories of the countries or were they secondhand stories just because he, he knew stories about these places? It was a bit of both. He did travel a lot for work and he did a lot of travelling when he was a bit younger. But then it was also him telling me about sort of things going on in the world, I guess, but for a young child and just talking about like Middle East and the deserts and those sort of things. Yeah, so I guess that sort of just inspired me to keep looking at maps as well, because we just look at the maps all the time. Well, I can see your room. The others can't, but uh, because because we're on on Zoom as well as recording this, I can see what uh, you've got in the background. So I can see maps play a big part in (laughs) in decorations too. There's a there's a map of New Zealand up there. Yeah, yeah. um, Just this weekend, I looked in my box of maps. (laughs) I was just looking through them all, organising them. (laughs) Bit of a map nerd. (laughs) Have you been to New Zealand? Yes, I went in 2020, just before COVID. All right. And, and both islands? Uh, yes. Did a road trip around both. Hired a camper van, my friend. We drove for three weeks or so. And so then that map isn't just a map that's showing you places. It's a map that's containing your stories, your memories, your your trip is a, is encapsulated within that map, really. Yeah, definitely. And when my friends come over, I show them where we went <laughs> on the road trip. And it's a nice reminder to have as well, because I bought it out there as well. So... Loved it back from New Zealand. (laughs) 
I do think maps are fascinating. You know, I'm the same as you. I, I just love looking at maps. They either tell stories of places where you've been and mm. you can just reimagine those. I've got some that are from mountain marathons for a while from a while ago. And I can just it just reminds me of going from one checkpoint to another, what the countryside was like. These are the Scottish maps. So it does that. But you can also look at maps of places that you haven't been and imagine yeah. the stories that they're going to tell as well. Definitely. And that's I think what my dad and I did. Well, especially me at a young age hadn't been many places. So it's just me imagining what those places would be like and you know, sort of visualizing all the countries on the map as well. I think it helped my geography knowledge as well. Well, I think it does. I, I particularly sometimes, I've done some work with, with primary school children and some of them have a really good understanding of whereabouts their place is in relation to other places mm. in Britain, for instance. And others, obviously, have not had that sort of experience. They've not encountered maps. So they, they've not a clue. They don't know where it is. But it, yeah. it helps in your understanding of, where you are in your place in the world I think yeah definitely I feel one of the skills I have is sort of navigation or I sort of know where I am in a town or something whereas sometimes people struggle with orientation but I don't know if that just naturally to me or because I have studied maps quite a lot <laughs> yeah it's an interesting thought how maps can help so in that aspect how come you you sort of separated the two really you separated geography and maps so you talked about maps and then you said and also geography was my favorite subject so it, it wasn't necessarily maps that led you into geography was it or was there something else going on I think as both I think definitely maps did help the geography aspect but I think I just enjoyed learning about volcanoes and places and all the other topics you learn in geography that not necessarily had a map element but then you'd think, oh, where would they be on the map? And then that, I think, ties both the elements together. I don't know, just geography came naturally. <laughs> I struggled in the science subjects. That was interesting. You had a science route through your A-levels. It yeah. wasn't, a, wasn't a humanities route. It was a science route specifically. No, I did, I did do history AS level, but that got dropped. So I stuck with the sciences and did geography, biology and chemistry. And then that led me on to do environmental geography at University of York which was a science degree. It's interesting that because we talked earlier and given where you are now, you said, I know that we, we talk about the cryosphere. I know you're in, you, that was your big interest. You said there was a GIS module in the second year and it wasn't your favourite module. And no. was a GIS technician. Yeah. So, <laughs> there's two things to unpick there. One, the, what your interest in the cryosphere led to. What does that mean for some people who don't know what cryosphere is? And how did you then end up developing that interest in GIS when it wasn't the most interesting module? Yeah, it's interesting because the GIS module came second year and it was sort of the first, I guess, introduction to it. It was quite a long process and to get your head around this sort of technology. But I think it was learning the basics and going through the sort of tutorials and things at the very beginning, I wasn't very keen on. I mean, I love doing it now, but I think at the time it was a bit stressful. And then after doing that module, I tried to do as much GIS as possible because I was, wanted to give it another go. And I think also realising that there was such a concept as GIS and you could do sort of technology and maths together and potentially have a career in it. That led me into investigating it more 
And so I tried to do as much GIS as possible in my modules. So in third year, I did my dissertation basically on GIS and the cryosphere, which was the cryosphere is about ice and glaciers and all that. So yeah, my dissertation was looking at proglacial lakes and glacial retreat in the Cordilla Blanca region in Peru. And I tried to use my best GIS knowledge to like trace the um, glacial retreat over time and the growth of proglacial lakes and sort of what that meant and just the analysis of it. And yes, yeah, so I taught myself a few things for that and realised I really enjoyed it. What was the purpose? What, what were you doing that for? I mean, I, I understand that cities like Lima are dependent, aren't they, on glacial ice? Mm. What was your reasoning for why you chose that area? Because you never went, did you? you no, unfortunately not. <laughs> There's a city called Haraz, which is just below the area of the glaciers I looked at. So There's about 10 glacial lakes and 10 glaciers in total and that was associated with each other. And I think it's just looking at the human element as well and what it meant if there was a proglacial, if there was a glof, which is a glacial lake outburst flood, which is usually susceptible from like, multiple factors that could cause a glof. And I think it was just looking at those different factors and elements was really interesting. And there's not much research done at the time in that particular area. I think now it's becoming a big issue because of the glacial retreat and the rate it is actually happening. Yeah, it was really interesting. I wonder if it's the place I stayed in, Juarez. Juarez, yeah. We went up Pisco. So I had absolutely no idea then while I was there that I might have been inundated with floodwaters. If they, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if I think there might have been a couple of events, like a couple of historic events. And as it is increasing, the volume of water in these lakes and they're probably weakening like marine structure. And I don't know now if they're implementing any strategies to help mitigate it. But what could it mean in the future if there is another gloss or something? So I think, yeah, I would, I mean, I would have written my dissertation multiple times because I really enjoyed that topic. So I would have written probably more about, like, do a few years later and just see, like, predict the future. With your hindsight now, is there, a, do you have any idea about how you might have wanted that GIS to be taught differently? Or do you think you have to do those basics? I've spoken to Alistair Hamill on, on one of the podcasts earlier who does some fantastic work with GIS. But I think it's as scary for teachers mm. as you felt when you first did it. Yeah, I think it can be very overwhelming because for a lot of people, and for me at the time, it was a new concept. I think you do have to go through that sort of process, though. At university, we have sort of handouts so explaining what to do. I think you do have to go through that to sort of understand how the whole software works, which I think a lot of people put off by. But I think once you come out of that and then you sort of do it yourself, I think you get a lot more benefit out of it and then you really enjoy it. So I think it's just that balance. What are you using? Is it ArcGIS that you use? Yeah, so I used ArcMap for the first few modules and then now I use ArcPro mainly. But the ArcGIS suite, there's room. <laughs> So let's let's move on a little bit then. So you're now leaving university and thinking, hmm, I fancy I fancy a career in GIS, which it isn't necessarily a career for, I'm going to sound sexist here, but there aren't many women who are going to become GIS technicians, I don't think. Or you could put me right. No, I don't. I honestly don't think there's that many in GIS. So I'm not really sure why there's that imbalance. To be honest, there is from what I've seen. I don't know if it's the outdated view that more men go into tech. And for me, the nature of the work at Alsis, I think there is probably a more male-dominant side to it. But 
there is now again greater diversity in tech, which is really important, and especially in GIS, but it can always be improved upon. Like, for example, there are groups out there that support each other. I know in the GIS field, and I'm sure in other sort of tech fields there are, but for GIS, there's Ladies and Landsat, there's Women in Geospatial Plus, which are really good groups to join, and they help share knowledge and support each other through, like, if it's getting another GIS job or you know, sharing conferences and webinars and things is a really good thing to join if you're in those fields. You were the winner, weren't you, of the, uh, the Women in Geospatial Writing Competition? Yes. <laughs> Before I ask you about that one, I'm just going to ask you about then how you got your role in GIS. So you've left university and you've done a module in GIS. How did you end up becoming a GIS technician from there? I think after my dissertation, as I mentioned earlier, I really enjoyed doing it. So I thought, well, hang on, I could have a career in this. Why don't I look into it more? So after I graduated in 2019, I started looking at different entry level jobs. And I found it really difficult because a lot of those entry or graduate level jobs that were advertised, they wanted you to have lots of different skills that you shouldn't necessarily have coming out of university just yet. It would be like two years experience. I was like, well, I'm freshly out of university. I can't really sort of justify myself applying for it. So basically it was, you need to get experience to have experience, but it was just a vicious cycle. It is. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I know. My my younger son was the same. He um, he was looking for roles in environmental consultancy and they wanted experience. So he did a master's and then applied again for graduate posts. And they still said they wanted experience. Well, he was experienced, he'd done a master's, but it still was tricky. So I know what you mean. Yeah. It's very difficult to get on, but you did. So how did that happen? Well, as you mentioned, your son doing master's, I actually looked into doing master's as well while applying for these jobs. And there was an opening for a GIS volunteer at the British Red Cross in London. And I applied thinking, oh, I won't get it because I've been rejected by all these other <laughs> different volunteer roles as well. And actually ended up getting it and I was so happy about it and started in March 2020 which is probably the worst time <laughs> yeah. to start timing of Covid and so then during the lockdowns still sort of volunteering I was offered a three-month internship for GIS at ALSIS which is based in Guildford but it was completely remote essentially so I basically learned so much on that internship and it was just interesting way to learn online essentially not being around other people in the office and I found it quite difficult but I was really lucky that I had a mentor at the company at the time who you know really helped me you know, develop my GS skills and just my confidence in like a workplace environment as well I've been there for over two years now. <laughs> uh, well I, I want to go back then to ask you about the the Women in Geospatial competition. Mm -hmm. Did you do that early on, or is that no? That was that, that was twenty twenty two. But it, it's it's just a recent award, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was 2021, 2022, yeah. That's sort of time frame. <laughs> yeah, I saw the opportunity for it through the Women in Geospatial Plus group on LinkedIn, as I mentioned earlier. And I thought, why not have a go? I don't get to write articles as much um, or reports. And it would put me out of my comfort zone. I felt like I need to challenge. And why not, you know, go for an opportunity that's right there in front of you? And I was really lucky that Alice's, you know, supported me through it as well. The theme for the competition was Geospatial for Good, which I think is a really important theme in GIS. It can cover a whole wide range of industries within GIS. So it could be about poverty, climate, conflict, and so on. But I chose to talk about population. 
So the article talked about how else has we come across a variety of different types of data and at varying quality levels. Population data would be used by large NGOs or companies for a variety of reasons, such as food and distribution or pop-up COVID-19 vaccination centres. But through no fault of our own, they might have missed thousands of people just because that data that we used simply didn't put those people on the map. So those people who were left off wouldn't have received aid or assistance and then literally be left behind. So for me, I think that's a really important topic and I really enjoyed writing it. But understandably, mapping the population is a significant challenge. There's factors such as migration and just the sheer scale of trying to map how many, is it like 9 billion now? Yeah, crazy. But there's organisations such as OpenStreetMap who are trying to tackle that. And at Alsus, we have a 2014 and a 2019 compound data set where we mapped every residential compound in Afghanistan for those two years. And we often use it in our work for a variety of analysis. And yes, overall, the article was how can we carry out geospatial for good in the humanitarian setting if we don't actually know where the people are? It's, doesn't it, too... Because the, the strap line that I read out was about improving the lives of the world's most vulnerable people. Mm. And what you picked out on was the UN Sustainable Development Group 2030 Agenda Commitment is about leaving no one behind. And yeah. you'd identified that uh, it's really hard to understand who's being left behind if you don't know they're there. Exactly. Yeah. Because those people won't, they wouldn't receive aid or people won't know that they're there. I saw one of the judges' comments on it, and it said, when they awarded you the, the prize, they said, one judge said it was like the beginning of something you might read in National Geographic as you explored this business of how we could meet that promise of leaving no one behind. So you've talked about a variety of, of different data and that we might miss these people, but what does open street mapping bring to it? What's going on there? So OpenStreetMap is an organisation that allows anyone and everyone to map anywhere in the world. So I go onto OpenStreetMap, you could create an account, students could, teachers could, and essentially just help map communities that may not be mapped or help update data that's on there. And then it's open source, so anyone can go and use that data. So we use it a lot in our work as well, because sometimes it is the best data set out there. Is that what? If I'm in Afghanistan, say, would it be the somebody who's doing aid work or voluntary work? How, what what do I need to be able to add to the open source data set? If it's an area that's not mapped and I want to map, I don't know, I want to map some, even something as simple as the roads and, and that my settlement's not on. What do I need to do that? You just need your computer and the want to help the community. You just create an account and then there's a lot of tutorials out there as well or projects and tasks um, that you can go and sort of join and then people sort of validate your work as well. So there's that element of reassurance that you are helping. How is it quality controlled then? So I go out and I map it. Is it using some sort of tracker or do I have to put the data in? So if you do it via one of their tasks they've got, you get given a square, basically, and you map everything square, or it depends on the task and the project, what they want you to do. And then once you completed it, it will go to a validator and they'll check your work for you. So there is that quality assurance there. Or you can just go and edit and map areas in, let's say, Senegal or Uganda or Argentina and just map the communities that might have been left up there. 
Are, are there moderators for it, like there are with, with, say, Wikipedia, so that you know that somebody's at least attempting to moderate what's going on, so that you don't get something put on there that is is inaccurate? Yes, there are moderators. And then there's also, I guess, the community that sense checks things as well. There are official sort of validators, yes. And is that compared to satellite imagery as well? I'm just trying to get a feel for how how the mapping works. So you've got the satellite imagery as well, I would imagine. Even if it's somewhere remote in Afghanistan, you can use satellite imagery as part of your verification process, can you? Yeah, so you use satellite imagery to map the data. And again, it's this issue of there's like an open street map and then there's the projects called like humanitarian open street map. And the humanitarian open street map has tasks and projects that it might be very specific. So it might have one set of satellite imagery over a small area or something. But then OSM editor, which is where you can just go and edit yourself, has multiple different types of satellite imagery. So some might be outdated. So it's a bit tricky, but usually if you're in the field, you know which one to use, I guess. It's a bit like using Google Street View and then knowing that that shop's gone because Google Street View took that image five years ago, whenever it was, and uh, it's out of date because those sorts of things have changed. Yeah, for looking at Uganda, it's interesting because the different satellite imagery, well, we see it in Google Maps as well, Google Earth. We know it's old imagery because there's IDP camps or tents and things there. So that's like one way that we sort of sense check the satellite imagery, if it's up to date or not. Sometimes you can't see the dates. Tell me about Alsys then. I, I've got the idea from the website, but how is it how is it set up? It's, it's, it's only a young company, isn't it? It's only a young organisation. And I know mm. you work largely in Afghanistan, but are, are looking much more worldwide now. So how did it start? What's the, I've, I've seen the strap line, what are the key sorts of things that you get involved with? Yeah, so you are right. I guess it is a young company. It started in 2004 in Kabul. Our managing director, Richard Britton, started the company and he had a vision to use his sort of expertise and data to improve those in fragile and complex environments such as Afghanistan. And we work with governments, development agencies, NGOs from across the developing world. And as you said, we are mainly Afghan focused, but we are branching out to new countries, regions with also different themes and projects. The GEO's Geography Quality Marks are prestigious awards which recognise, reward and promote quality and progress in geography leadership, curriculum development and learning and teaching in schools. A powerful process of self-evaluation and reflection, the frameworks incorporate the key messages of the 2019 Education Inspection Framework, supporting schools to develop a curriculum with high quality intent, implementation and impact. As a school working towards the award, you'll receive access to support, guidance and exemplification of quality geography through our webinars and online portal and assessment and detailed feedback on your submission so that you know where to focus your next steps. You'll also become part of our international network of over 1,500 Geography Quality Mark schools. For further information or to register for the 2023 cohort, please go to our website at geography.org.uk. I think it's worth a mention because uh, Alsys won the Esri Partner High Impact Award, didn't they, for the, for the compelling use of Esri technology. So that was looking at current issues around the world. And that was a 2022. So the organisations, there wouldn't have been an awful lot of GIS in 2004. So that was in, um, that must have been in its infancy, but it's come on an awful long way. Mm. At the forefront, I would imagine, of what's going on in Afghanistan in terms of uh, analysing data. Yeah, definitely. Even just 
GIS itself has grown so much in the software we use. It's developed so much. There's a lot of different types of software now, or within the Esri world, there's so many applications and it's amazing like how much it has grown. Why do you think your work analysis is so important? What what are the key things that you you value most? So at Alsys, we work, I guess, to improve the lives of those in fragile environments. And I think our work at Alsys is important because using GIS and our knowledge, we make satellite imagery, geospatial analysis and data visualisation, I guess, more relevant to those non-expert users or those who are the policymakers. And GIS adds another layer to those reports and analysis that those policymakers might not have you know, thought about or had access to before. And it can provide just a different way to help solve world's problems. Give me a flavour then of of how you do what you do. Because you've talked about acquiring data sets and you said a little bit about verifying the accuracy just because you've looked at them and there are camps there or there shouldn't be camps there. So describe for me your day. How do you do what you do? What, What are you looking at when you set yourself up at the computer? I guess it's never the same day. I might be you know, thinking I'm going to be working on this data set, but then something else comes along, such as the Afghanistan earthquake. That was a sort of emergency response situation. So we sort of had to drop everything and sort of work on that. And that was really interesting. So yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do from day to day. Who is it? Who uses your data? Who are the, the key players? Without mentioning anybody particularly, but who is it? who are the key players? It depends, really. We have a variety of projects, clients, and as I mentioned earlier, the Afghanistan earthquake in, back in June, we worked rapidly as an emergency response to produce insights into the impact. And we want to support the humanitarian aid effort and to help those agencies reach those affected by the earthquake. And that's where we used our residential compound data. And that data was then made publicly available in the form of a web app, so anyone could have used it. And then another project we did in Afghanistan, there's another example, was for Kuchis, who are nomadic pastoralists who typically migrate within Afghanistan. And there wasn't much information about them, so we had to do literature review. The aim of the project was to assess where the Kuchi would be in the month of October, as that's where the client wants to carry out their field work on their livestock. And in our literature review, we assessed like the behaviours and the typical routes they sort of travel along. And then we created areas of interest from our analysis and looked at satellite imagery to digitise the tents we found. And that data was then provided to the aid agency, who were then able to carry out their project work. I'd never heard of the Coochie. So these are a, a nomadic people. Mm-hmm. They herd goats, I assume. Livestock, yeah. <laughs> and when we were talking earlier, you talked about value chains, which I'd never come across either. So the point of monitoring where these people were going was more to do with the livestock and the quality of the wool. Is that right? Yes. So it was it was a business thing, really. It was about making sure that the quality of feed is the best that that those animals can possibly get. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, value chains is a big part of what we do, I guess. Oh, everything leads back was part of the value chain. So if you look on our website, you see there's a lot of different types of value chains we've worked on. I think that's fascinating. So you're looking at these people using satellite imagery and and other data to help them find the best place to go to get feed. They're a, a nomadic people. The interface between 21st century technology 
and nomadic herds people is is pretty amazing. How do you get the message to them to say, right, you want to veer off 20, is this how it works? You want to veer off 25 miles to the left because the feed is better there than where you're heading off at the moment. I know you're on your, your path, but you ought to be slightly on a slightly different path. So we provided the client with areas where we thought the coochie would be in and we sort of did a analysis where we thought they would be so that they could go to talk or like you know do their field work on the animals and then I don't know what we did with that if they oh, carried it on further. Right so it, it wasn't to direct them to better places the the coochie themselves it was to direct people who wanted to to communicate to engage with the coochie people. Yeah. It was to, it was to let them know where a, a nomadic group might possibly be yeah exactly were were you spotting the nomads the herd is that what you you could see yes yeah they have big black tents or white tents so they're really easy to spot in satellite imagery and they're normally in there's different herd sizes different amount of tents as well so we captured that but they're quite not obvious to see but once you know what you're looking for or the areas you're looking in you can spot them quite easily so that's what we mapped and then relayed did analysis and relayed that information onto the client. So you you can't actually see individual people, but and then because sometimes people these spy films they make out that you can see individuals wandering about in Afghanistan. It's not quite as sharp as that. So usually the imagery we use isn't that sharp, but actually we do have access to some over Afghanistan that is aerial imagery. So it's better resolution. So you can see individual goats, people. But I could see people's um, washing hanging up on the line. <laughs> oh, blimey. Because of course, also the shadows sort of um, accentuate, I guess, the clothes on there, but you can see it. <laughs> How effective is it? Do you, do you get feedback back that says what impact you're identifying those people has, has had? I think in general, in all projects, we do get feedback. So we talked about the Kuchi migration. We talked about the Afghan earthquake. If anyone wants to follow up on these and some others, actually, so some really interesting things about, about talc mining. There's some stuff about people smuggling. Um, all of those can be found on the website. It's a huge resource, isn't it? Yes, definitely. There is a lot of material there, as you said. You've got other projects as well, and lots of story maps, which are really good because it's an interactive way to show our work. There are also published reports on the website that we've been involved in. And as you said, it's a great place to see our work. And it's also somewhere you can learn about something different, such as people smuggling or talc or coochies. This was one interesting, well, there's lots of interesting things, but um, I, I was looking at the blog as well. And if teachers haven't seen this, there is a raft of information on here. On the blog, there was one about the Kamal Khan Dam. Mm-hmm. And it, I think the title of it was Holding Water to Ransom. And quite often A-level students will look at water resources and the potential for conflict And that's one that's causing violence and conflict between that's between Iran and Afghanistan, isn't it? This Mm. construction of the new dam. So there's a there's an awful lot of interesting things on the blog as well as your story maps. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the um, Camel Khan Dam is a really interesting case study. It's quite controversial, and then the impact it's had on Iran and and Afghanistan itself. Yeah, I'd recommend looking into that. I also noted when I was looking at that, which was interesting for me, you were involved in 
it's coming to an end now, isn't it? The 30-day map challenge. So it's it's a map for every day in November, I think. Is that right? Yes, it is. A map a day. <laughs> and that's you that's producing the maps? It's a team effort. It's Alice's together. Yeah, we, this is our first time taking part of it. And we thought, why not take the opportunity? We didn't realise how much a map a day would take. It was more ambitious than we thought. There's a different theme each day. And it's a great chance for us to think about different maps, different ways of visualising data, and as well to get out of our normal mindset of Alsis. And I found it really interesting as well to see how other people have interpreted the themes or what they've created. So I go on Twitter quite a lot, use the hashtag 30 Day Maps Challenge, and just scroll through and see what other people have done. And it's really interesting. And they've done some really good maps here. And also just helps you think about, oh, what could I do? Or how could I use that sort of method or that visualisation? Um, so I would really recommend it as well just to for teachers or students just to go through and see what could be done. It is interesting because data is data. But when you start to visualise it, you can make it tell a different story. Yeah, definitely. So you've got to be really careful, haven't you? I, I know you've, day 10, <laughs> your day 10 was a bad day map, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> so if people look at that one, why did you pick that one? So for each of the themes, there's so many different possibilities you could do. So for the bad map, we're thinking, well, everyone in everyday life comes across a bad map, whether you know it or not, to be honest. Sometimes it's too confusing. There's too much data on a map. It's mislabeled, not symbolised well. So that sort of inspired our bad map, where we essentially dumped a lot of data onto a map of Afghanistan and didn't symbolise it at all, which is a bit stressful. And then we exported it out. So it just sort of showed like how there is data on the map, but you just can't tell what it is and it's not very helpful to anyone. So yeah, it was a great exercise in broadening sort of our thoughts and ways to make our maps better in a way. I really enjoyed ours being a part of the 30-day map challenge in itself. I think that would be an interesting one to develop further because students at A-level, possibly GCSE as well, but certainly at A-level would be asked about the way that they present their data and whether it's an effective way, what's wrong with the way that that data is being presented. That's always more difficult than asking people to just produce data when you've got something that's that's wrong, especially when it's it's not that wrong. When we were talking earlier, I was, I was mentioning a, a map that I saw of malaria in southern Africa, and you've got a tiny little enclave in South Africa that's malaria free and it looks as though because it's a choropleth map it looks as though once you stand once you step over the border into that enclave which is Lesotho there's no malaria and you step over the line and you're into a, a malaria region and you're not really it's just the way that the data's been mapped to the choropleth to each country there's a huge range of, of areas that some are malarial and others are not but because of the way that the data's being displayed it looks as though the whole area is malaria. It's a bit yeah. of if you're heading off to, to go on your holidays and you look at a map like that and the uh, the chemist is saying, oh, you don't need to take malaria pills. And you're looking at the map and it says, hey, just a minute, this is a malarial area. No, it isn't. It's not particularly well presented data. The saying that data never lies, um, which is generally true. However, with spatial data, I guess there is a degree to what a cartographer or that analysis wants you to see. 
Generally, the data is true, but it might not be showing the complete story, is what I found. For example, using a different number of classes when carrying out analysis or you know, removing areas you don't want to be shown uh, might skew the data and overall analysis. It might be human error, mislabeling, or just insufficient data, which um, would lead to the whole story not being told, such as the population data sets and those people being left behind them not being on the map might impact the analysis or, you know, people might see, oh, this area is not very populated, but really it is. There is also a lot of fake news out there. So I think it's really important that you data check. I think yeah. so. I, I, that would be really the next thing on the, the map a day, the 30 day map challenge. It would be really nice to do a number of maps that illustrate what we've just been saying there. I think that'd be really useful. Because mm. I was thinking, it's hard enough using GIS in the classroom. It's difficult for teachers. You've got to have the right your right kit. You've got to have a decent, fast broadband. And as you said right at the beginning, you've got to have a basic set of skills. Because you're almost one button click away from hell, really. If you if you don't know what you're doing. you press it, and then oh, yeah, how do I get back? I have no idea. Yeah. So it's hard, but you ran a session at the GA conference and it was really successful. So the reviews are anyway. I didn't see that one. So what did you do? So um, the title of the session was Humanitarian Mapping with GIS. And we decided to stick with the theme of Leave No One Behind. And we got the students to digitise huts in Uganda using the OpenStreetMap, as we met talking about earlier. We decided to do this task because our marketing manager has a charity called Seas for Development, which works with remote farming communities in northern Uganda. So we still had access to that expert knowledge on the area. So that was your taster of using GIS with, with students, I suppose. And it was very effective. So how would you advise teachers on ways to approach using spatial data? I think using OpenStreetMap is a good way to get into it. And as I mentioned earlier, I think there's tutorials out there as well they can help you know build your confidence with it but there are different like sources such as um, Esri I believe there is a repository of all sorts on uh, story maps and and tutorials for how to use ArcGIS from Esri so there's there's a lot that they provide yeah Esri is really good for educators such as there's a Esri teacher page where I believe you can sign up and if you're struggling with GIS or we want to sort of get into teaching GIS um, and then those who work in GIS in your local area can come and help you. And then there's Esri is a great source for different types of story maps as well. There's yeah. just so much, isn't there? It's, it's hard to it's hard to process it all. It's just that's the trouble with with data sets sometimes. There's so much that it it's hard to know where to start. Exactly. Yeah. What's next for you then at uh, at Alsys and what's next for the company? Where are you taking your developments next? You're wanting to go beyond beyond Afghanistan, so going global. What's what's the future? Yes, yeah, so we do have projects ongoing that's outside of Afghanistan, but we're always looking at ways to sort of grow into other regions and different types of projects, constantly looking for like new data, new ways to sort of carry out analysis. And you just need to look at the news and see different types of challenges facing the world. Climate change, poverty, conflict, and all of those GIS can help with. And so we're hoping to, you know, branch out into a wide range of projects. What would interest me as we, as we come to the finish of this is, uh, 
what data sets can be shared with teachers that they can effectively use? Because we've talked about clients and that will be data confidentiality. Mm. Which data sets can be used for teachers to do an analysis? Say they wanted to look at something in terms of, of say, migration in Afghanistan. Say they, would, they had a topic on migration. How much of those data sets are, are freely available? Yeah, so open source data is becoming really important now. And I think everyone having access to it is really key in people learning and understanding GIS and other geographical topics. So there is a lot of open source data out there. Um, you just got to make sure it's from a trustworthy source. There's sites such as Humanitarian Data Exchange. There's a lot on Esri, as we mentioned, and NASA have a lot, OpenStreetMap. And they have different types of data in different areas of geography. NASA, for example, has like wildfire maps that are interactive, and Esri have interactive maps as well. So they're great places to start. What's your advice for teachers and students to get in to get them involved with GIS? What do you suggest? I think an easy way to inspire students, teachers, is to look at maps already being made. So, for example, that first day map challenge hashtag is a really good idea. Or if it's like on a particular topic or case study, try and search for maps that are on there about them. In terms of actually using GIS, I'd say YouTube is actually a great way to find tutorials. Mm -hmm. And there's so a wealth of tutorials on YouTube and multiple people doing the same tutorial or you know showing different ways to do things john nelson is a really good person for visualizing data that's more expert side not teacher side but i think gis in schools does need to sort of develop so i don't remember doing gis at school apparently we did but i don't remember it so i think it's really important that teachers have access to this like resource software like qgis is free to use and i actually use that at university as well but I think, yeah, YouTube tutorials to gain confidence and, you know, it's free resource to sort of learn how to use JS. So I use YouTube tutorials all the time. Well, you've given me a, a, a new idea then because I've never used YouTube. Well, I'm, I'm not for that. I use it to, to fix the bike and I use it for various other bits and pieces. I've never thought about it for JS. What a brilliant idea. Mm. It's been... A pleasure. Thank you very much for taking us through, Alsis. It's uh, the, the company sounds fascinating and so does the job. And this idea of leaving no one behind is uh, is just an amazing ambition. And so I do wish you well with the rest of your work. And thank you very much for coming on and, and chatting to us about what you do and what the organisation does. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.